Father, we love You and we are so grateful to be a part of Your church. We who know You, who know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are so grateful to be forgiven of our sins. We are so grateful to be new creations in Christ Jesus and we have come here today as a family of believers to thank You and to pour our hearts out and praise, to sing to You, Father. And I, I pray and I trust that it was pleasing, God, as we lifted our voices up to You today and that truly You are here moving amongst Your people. And now as Your Word goes forth, as we humble ourselves before the Bible, as we work our way through Acts chapter 5, God, I pray that You would bless that. I pray that You would bless us, God. Please speak to our hearts. I pray that You would reward the people who came here today. They came here to hear from You, God, and I pray that You would bless them for that, that You would meet with them. There are many different needs in this room right now. There are people who are hurting immensely, people who are frustrated and exhausted, people who are lost and desperately in need of You, Father. And there are people who have so many physical needs, relational needs, people who are addicted. Uh, there are, are countless issues, Father, and You know them all. And You are able, God, to, to minister to every person here today. There's nothing that is beyond Your reach. So there's nothing that is too hard for You, nothing that is too far for You, God. And so we cry out to You, Lord. We need You. We need You, Lord. Every hour we need You. And so I pray that You would stir up our affections afresh for You now as we get into Your Word. I pray that You would minister to our hearts, and above all, You would be glorified, God. In Jesus' name, Amen. I just want to say last week uh, something that really ministered to me uh, as we were working our way through Acts chapters 3 and 4, and I talked about, uh, they, it was very obvious to them that the apostles had been with Jesus. They were uneducated, untrained men, but one thing was obvious, they had been with the Lord. And I talked about how that's number one for us. We have to be in the Lord's presence. And I, I use the language being at the Lord's feet. And that's a little bit of Christianese. We talk about that. Um, Mary and Martha, you know, we all know the story about how they had um, had Jesus into their home and, and Martha was very busy serving the Lord and she was frustrated that Mary wasn't helping her. Mary was in the, in the, the area where Jesus was and she was just sitting at His feet listening to what He had to say. And Martha asked the Lord to reprimand Mary and make her get in there and help her serve. And he said, you know what? You have busied yourself with many things, but she has chosen the best thing. To be there, to be at Jesus' feet, to, to hear from Him and to give, her, give Him all of her attention. And so that's kind of what I was getting at. And um, that really spoke to me as I was thinking about that. I thought, I need to be in the Lord's presence more. Amen? We all need to be in the Lord's presence. We need to be seeking the Lord's face and it happens right here. Right here as we, we get into His Word and we read the Bible and we have the Word of God preserved for us in this book and it is living, it is sharp, it is active, it is powerful, it changes lives, it cuts us to, to the heart and we are transformed into God's image as we meet with Him in His Word. And you know, as a, as a pastor, it's easy to uh, get into this mode where you are reading the Bible to teach it to other people. Uh, Bible teachers, anybody who teaches the Bible regularly, it becomes a deadly dangerous habit even. And uh, 
you know, I just, the Lord really ministered to me and I got back to the basics and I just uh, started reading in Romans this past week. I read through Romans and I'm in 1 Corinthians and I just want to confess to you guys anew, I love the Word of God. I love the Bible and it is really just that simple. We meet with the Lord in the Word and He meets with us and He speaks to us and we learn more about Him and He leads us in different situations in our life. He speaks specifically to different areas. And you guys, you believers, know what I'm talking about when the Lord speaks to your heart about something through His Word. It is so sweet. And you know what? It is just that simple. It is that simple and it is that profound. So I just wanted to share that quick testimony, how God ministered to me through my own sermon last week. And, uh, you know, and I, I have seen the fruit of it over this past week, and I want to encourage you guys. The, the Bible is so wonderful. It's why we teach it. It's what it's all about. This is why we gather week after week and we just plow through the Bible. That's what we're doing today. So we are in chapter 5. As we get into this, I'm going to drop back a few verses into chapter 4. I've titled this Life in the Church. Initially, I called it the Radical Church because as we're going to see, there are many radical things happening here in the beginning of the church. But the more I thought about it, I realized we see that as radical, but in so many ways it should be normal. In some ways, some of these things we look at should be normal. And I'll talk more about that as we go. So I just basically title this, you know, Life in the Church. And that's what we're looking at. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He has send, uh, sent the Holy Spirit. The disciples are going out now. Now they are apostles. They are empowered by the Spirit. They are planting churches. They're doing wonderful works in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're seeing happen here. And so there's really four different things we're going to look at in this sermon. It was kind of challenging to bring this underneath one, one main central idea. But we're going to be looking at basically four different things. And one thing we're going to see is a very uh, uncommon kind of generosity that was happening in the church. Then we're going to see a situation where hypocrisy arises and God deals very severely with it. Then we're going to see uh, a quick snippet of uh, basically a synopsis of what is happening in the church at that time with the apostles. It's really just a summary of, of what all is happening in the church as signs and wonders are happening through the apostles. And then lastly, we're going to see the opposition that was happening in the church, the opposition that the apostles in particular were facing from the religious leaders as they were going out in obedience to the Lord. And so each one of these scenes definitely builds off the previous scene. And so they definitely flow together. But it was hard for me to really lump all of this into one central point. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there as we go. But each scene definitely builds off the previous scene. So with that, we're going to start out in chapter 4, verse 32. We did cover this last week, but I think it's necessary for us to look at this as we kind of uh, move into chapter 5. So chapter 4, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of land or Houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. And they laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, 
which is translated son of, a, son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this is a, a very unusual generosity that's happening in the early church here. And first off, I notice it says that they were of one heart and one soul. There was incredible unity. There was incredible love. They were of the same heart. And they were of the same soul. This church loved each other. And they were on mission together. And they really understood what it meant to be a part of the kingdom, a part of the body of Christ. They had each other's back. They were there for each other. So much so that nobody saw their own possessions as their own. Whatever anyone had, they saw it as for anyone who had a need. Now that's pretty incredible. And I would say that that it truly is a scriptural principle. It's called stewardship. And again, this is one of those Bible words, but the idea here is that whatever we have, it's been entrusted to us and it's not necessarily our own. And sometimes we see this with business managers. Um, certain things have been placed into their care and it's their job to protect it, whether it be finances, you name it, etc. It may be their job to invest it. It may be their job to try to multiply these funds, but the funds are not theirs. It belongs to their boss, whoever they're working for. They're simply a steward. Well, within the kingdom of God, within the church, we understand that whatever we have, it really is not ours. It's given to us by the Lord, and it's our job to understand what is God's desire for us regarding these things that He's given us. And it may be your time, it may be certain giftings that you have, it may be your finances, it could be your vehicle, it could be your home. God might be asking you to invite someone to live in your house. I mean, people do this kind of thing frequently or to loan your car out or to give somebody a ride or to meet a financial need that somebody may be having or to spend more time with somebody. Whatever the case may be, we have to understand that we're not living for ourselves and whatever is ours, it's not ours ultimately. It belongs to God and we, we have to take an account of that. Are we doing God's will with what has been entrusted to us? And so we see that here. This is tremendous stewardship. And no one lacked because people were literally selling what they owned to give to others who had a need. People were selling their possessions to care for other people. Now I want to just speak about this for a second. Um, this was not communism in the early church. You know, uh, People were doing this volitionally. This was their individual desire. People felt led of the Lord. They felt very generous. They would, they would do these things very graciously, but this was not some command that was being put on them by the apostles. This is descriptive. That is to say, the, the Scriptures are not prescribing that we do this. The Bible is not saying that we should all go out and sell everything that we own and give it away. The Bible is not commanding that. It is simply describing for us something that was taking place in the church at that time, something that was very beautiful, and it was indeed glorious. And I don't want to take away from that. Some people have suggested that, uh, that it went bad for the church because of this, because they gave everything away that they had, that when Paul was taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem, it was directly related to this, that they ran themselves into the ground by giving away everything that they had. It's possible. As I said, I don't think that the Bible is saying that every person should give away everything that they have. 
But I don't want to minimize this, guys. How are we doing in this area? Are we generous with what the Lord has put in our possession? The things that we have been charged by the Lord to steward. How are we doing with this? Would you consider yourself generous? Do you have a light touch on the things that God has has given to you? Are you uh, willingly uh, ready to, to give those things away? if the Lord would have you, or are you clinging very uh, tightly to it? I look at how the early church did. They had all things in common. That phrase, whatever was mine, it's, it's anybody's. It's all of ours. They, they shared in all things. That was beautiful. And that was the, the state of the church. Now, that's the context for what happens as we move into chapter 5 here. So, chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to look at how God preserved purity in the church. Verse 1, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So now we meet Ananias and Sapphira. And they saw what was going on. They saw how people were selling their possessions and giving it to the apostles to distribute to the church. So they decided to do the same thing. So they had uh, what we find out later was land. They sold land. They brought a portion to the apostles, gave it to them, but they kept back some for themselves. Now what is happening here, it's hypocrisy. And we'll talk... I want to talk more about this as we go, obviously, but ultimately what's happening here is that they didn't give everything that that they had gotten for the land, but they gave the appearance as such. They claimed that they did. They claimed that they gave everything, all the proceeds that came from the land. It was hypocrisy. They were pretending to do something other than what they actually did. Now that is what hypocrisy is. That's what hypocrisy is. When it boils right down to it, it's being two-faced. It's wearing a mask. It's pretending to be something that you're not. Even to the point where you begin to uh, shame and guilt other people potentially for not being that. When you yourself are not even that. That is hypocrisy in the ultimate sense. Now, Jesus hated hypocrisy. And the people that he battled with the most regarding hypocrisy were the religious leaders of his day. If you just look at Matthew chapter 23 and read through that multiple times, he calls them hypocrites. He says, woe to you, you hypocrites. And he rails all these different accusations against them because that's exactly what they were. They loved to be seen as religious, as holy, as pious. They loved the power. They loved the prestige. They loved the honor that they received, but they didn't love God. They didn't truly honor the Lord. Outwardly, they pretended to be something that they really were not inwardly. And Jesus hated that. Jesus was always so gracious with the the downcast, with those who were struggling, with people who were having a hard time in life, but He had no tolerance for the hypocrite at all. And so we see that Just as Jesus dealt severely with hypocrisy when He was here on this earth, God is going to deal very severely with this hypocrisy that we're seeing taking place here. You know, people love to accuse the church of being full of hypocrites. Have you heard this? I'm sure you have. I'm sure that maybe many of us in this room have even said that at some point in time. The reality is the world is full of hypocrites. There are hypocrites everywhere. There are hypocrites everywhere. 
in your workplace, in school, at the coffee shop. There are hypocrites anywhere and everywhere, and I would say the number one place you'll find them is on social media, right? Because people will love to project a certain image on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever it may be. And I know, and I've had several conversations with people, they'll go on social media and just get depressed because they look at how glorious people's lives are, how great these people have it, how wonderful things are going for them, and it really makes them sick. But the reality is, is what they're seeing is, um, is, in a lot of ways, it's not reality. People will project this image that they want people to believe, when in all reality, their marriage is falling apart, they're getting ready to lose their house, um, they may have some real secret sin, they may be in bondage to addiction, you name it, but you look at their Instagram, and man, their life, they've got it going on, okay? So that's hypocrisy. And we see it all over the place. And to be sure, there are people in the church that have given the church a bad name throughout the years who, who claim to be something that they're not and they really come down on other people for not being whatever they claim to be. And then it, it's exposed. It comes out. That person was a fake. That person was in sin. And they were really coming down on other people for that same sin. That's hypocrisy. And to be certain, it does happen. But I'm not buying that the church is full of hypocrites. That's just something that love, people love to throw out. There's a big difference between struggling and being a hypocrite. I want you to understand that. The standard is the standard. And that's one of the challenges for a pastor. I know that I am not perfect. I know that I have my own issues. But the standard is the standard and I still have to preach it. But the difference is, is I don't stand up here and pretend that I've got it all together and you need to be like me. And how dare you for struggling in this area? You, you understand? That's the difference. And so uh, we're not claiming to be anything that we're not. We know that, but for the grace of God, there go we, right? We, we understand how desperately in need of Him we are and that without God we can do nothing. And, uh, and so none of us are perfect. We don't claim to be. But there was real hypocrisy going on here and it was going to get dealt with. And I would say that what that really boils down to is God desires purity in His church. Do you understand that? I want to repeat that. God desires purity in His church. And here in the very beginning of the church, He made that crystal clear. It was a very unusual and unique time in the early church. And I want to talk about that as we go. But we see very clearly how God feels about certain things. And we're going to see what God thinks about hypocrisy. So, moving on, verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. So Peter asked Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie? You have lied to the Holy Spirit. You have kept back part of the price. That's interesting interesting uh, language that Peter uses to suggest that Satan had filled his heart. Had he? I don't know. Literally, 
the, the Scriptures do say that Judas, that Satan entered Judas and he went out and he betrayed Jesus. But nonetheless, I think what's more significant here, who did Ananias lie to? The Holy Spirit, right? Ananias was, I'm sure, convinced that he was being deceptive with Peter, but perhaps he had not considered that ultimately he was lying to God. And that's what Peter said in verse 3, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4 he says, you have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. We'll talk more about it in a minute. But I want to say this, Peter makes it very clear that their property was their own to do with it what they wished. They didn't have to sell the property, period. Peter makes that very clear. You didn't have to sell it. It was yours. And secondly, when you sold it, you didn't have to give the proceeds to the church. They didn't have to do that. That was their own choice. But they should not have given it and lied about it and played the hypocrite. And God was not going to tolerate that. And God took that very personally. That sin was a grievous sin against God Himself. And God dealt very severely with Ananias, and Ananias died. And great fear came upon the people who saw this, understandably so. I mean, could you imagine such a thing? I know that many of us think, man, we would love to see and live in a time like the early church, but I don't know how many of us would make it. You know, it was serious, very serious. So now they're going to uh, address his wife, Sapphira. She wasn't here at this point, but she comes in. Now, verse 7. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. So now Peter puts her to the test, and he says, So tell me, did you sell the land for such and such a price? And she said, Yes, I did. And then Peter said, How is it that you have conspired to test the Spirit of the Lord? And then she falls down dead. And I think this is a very biblical principle, guys, and we've got to understand this, that our sin ultimately is against God. And David said it well when he said, against you and you alone have I sinned. And it's important for us to, to allow that to sink in for a second. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, you know, the people wanted... Uh, a king. The people of Israel, they wanted a king instead of God to rule over them. And so God said to Samuel here, I have it in your notes, the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. So Samuel was the prophet of the day. He was the judge. He was the priest. He was basically the leader of the nation under God. They were a theocracy. That means they were led by God. It was a theocratic kingdom. But they wanted a king like all the other nations. And Samuel was grieved about this. And God said to Samuel, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. God takes things very seriously. You remember when 
uh, Saul of Tarsus was persecuting the church and he was struck down on the road to Damascus by a blinding light. And Jesus spoke to him. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? So God takes these things seriously. And our sin is an affront to God Himself. And God desires, God will have a holy church. Period. And so great fear came upon the church when they saw this. Again, we see that phrase. And rightfully so. Wouldn't you say? That was something to be afraid of. So I guess I just want to speak to the people in the room right now who uh, are wearing a mask. Because undoubtedly there are a few. And there is... um, God desires that you would take off the mask and that you would confess your sins and that you would get right with God and that you would walk in the light as He is in the light. Amen? And so there's no condemnation. I'm not here to cast judgment and guilt. I'm here to call you to the truth. I'm here to call you to repentance because God takes it seriously and God will have a holy church. He will have a pure church. And nothing less will do. And so, I don't know who you are, but you know who you are, and God knows who you are. And He's speaking to your heart right now. And you're going to have time at the end of the service to do business with God and to get right. And I want to urge you, I want to plead with you, by the mercies of God, that you would do that. Alright, so, now we're going to look at what I described to you earlier as a real synopsis, an overview of the state of the church, what's happening at this time. So verse 12, And through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly, and believers were increasingly added to the church, excuse me, added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So there were many signs and wonders happening at this time. There were sick people, spiritually afflicted people, people who had... uh, evil spirits and they were being healed they were being cast out we're told that the apostles were there on solomon's porch in one accord they were on the temple on the temple precinct the temple compound this was like a porch solomon's porch it's a a portico it's basically um, a roof that's supported by pillars uh, that's right there by the court of the gentiles so that that seems to be an area where they were spending quite a bit of time and this is a really interesting phrase he said that no one dared to join them They were esteemed very highly. There was a real fear there. And what I believe this is saying is is there really was not a mixed multitude here. The church was the church. And the unbelievers were scared of the church. The unbelieving people had a real respect, a real fear for the church and the apostles. And so they really didn't mingle together. And the church was growing exponentially. God was saving people and the, the church was growing But there really wasn't a mix of believers and unbelievers. And uh, the people really feared them. They esteemed them greatly. And many people were being added to the Lord. 
And so that was really what was happening. This was a very unique time in church history. You know, Acts covers about 30 years of history. And you might be tempted to think as you read through this that there were just miracles happening all the time. And to be certain, there were mighty works happening. But as you look at the Bible overall, from cover to cover, miracles are not as prevalent as you might think at first. There are really three periods throughout biblical history where miracles like this are happening. And that was with Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, and then Jesus and the apostles. And that really corresponds with the law, the prophets, and then the New Testament writings. So whenever God was doing a fresh work, a new work, particularly or especially pertaining to uh, the written Word of God, He would validate that through extraordinary miracles, extraordinary signs and wonders. And so that's what we see happening here. But even as time goes on in the book of Acts, we see these things happening less and less. And we, we know obviously now the day and age we live in, this is not something that we just see on a regular basis. Is God still in the business of doing miracles? Absolutely. God is mighty to save. Every time He saves a soul, it's a miracle. It's probably one of the greatest miracles that you will ever see. And I do believe that around the world, in many places, God is doing extraordinary works, but this is not necessarily something that we just see happening all the time anymore, at least in this stage in the game. But this was a very extraordinary and special, unique time and work that God was doing in the church. So now we're going to move into this last part. We're going to look at the, the opposition that the church experienced, the opposition that was happening, especially against the apostles. So now they're doing all of these things. They're at the temple. You'll remember that uh, in chapter 4 when they uh, kind of went toe-to-toe with the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin and the high priest. They were there at the temple. And I talked about how the temple really belonged to the Sadducean party at that time and that the high priest uh, really ran with the Sadducees as opposed to the Pharisees. The, the, the Sadducees were the ones that were really there at the temple. And so we're going to see here in verse 17... Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees. And they were filled with indignation. And they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. So here we have the high priest and the Sadducees. They're back on the scene and they are angry. They are filled with indignation. And they had the apostles arrested and they're taken to jail. But over the night, the course of the night, they're actually released from jail by this angel. Three times in the book of Acts we see something similar to this. The, they're released from prison or the, the place shakes and the cell opens up. Um, and so this is one of three times that we kind of see that happen. And they had sent to, the, to jail to have them released. They want to call them to, to court, basically, to counsel. And they, they realize that the, the cell is empty. You look at verse 22 here. But when the officers came and they did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. 
Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. Clearly they were troubled. They didn't know what in the world was going on. Verse 25, So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple, and they are teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them with, without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. So they go, they find the cell empty, they come back and report that as the case, and they're kind of wondering what in the world is going on. And someone else shows up and says, hey, those guys are out of jail, and we saw them back in the temple again, teaching and preaching. So they go back and they rearrest them, and they bring them back, and they set them uh, before the council. So verse 27, when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to the right hand to be Prince and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are His witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Alright, so now they've been rearrested, but they weren't brought with violence because the, the temple police were afraid of the people, and so they brought them peacefully back to the council. So here we are in front of the council again. I mentioned this last week. This is most likely the Sanhedrin. This was the high court. It would have been 71 members, including the high priest. And so they say, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And that is referring back to chapter 4, verse 18. Remember we talked about that? And they strictly warned them not to teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter said, hey, you know, whether we do what is right in God's sight or your sight, you, you decide, but we can't help but speak the things that we have heard. So they went out and they did it anyways. But it's interesting here, they say, you intend to bring this man's blood on us. And I thought, I've heard that somewhere before. And I got to look and it was Matthew chapter 27, verse 25. When they were dealing with Pilate, Pilate wanted to turn Jesus loose. He wanted to set him free. And they said, hey, let his blood be on us and our children. That's what they said. And so here they're saying, hey man, you're trying to bring <clears throat> this guy's blood on us. And they had already said, let his blood be on us. So you see the, the contradiction there, okay? They're kind of trapped up in their own words now. Well, again, Peter said it, just like he said before, we have to obey God rather than men. That is the most important thing, period. Say what you want to, threaten us as much as you want to, we have to obey God rather than men. And that is exactly what they did. And it cost them. It cost them <clears throat> great opposition. But I wanted to draw your attention to something. In verse 30 and on, really, Peter gives another concise uh, gospel uh, message here, really. Verse 30 says, "...the God of our fathers raised up Jesus." whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. So Jesus was crucified. He was hung on the cross, but God <clears throat> raised Him from the dead. Verse 31, And God has exalted Him. God has exalted Him to the right hand to be the Prince and the Savior, 
to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. So also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. So Peter was just a gospel-preaching machine. He was preaching to the council. He was preaching to the people. He would get rearrested. He would preach to the council again. They're going to go back out and preach to the people. They could not be stopped. They would not be stopped. And I love the gospel message. And it should never get old to, to those of us who have been saved. You know, and um, I need the gospel today more than I have ever needed it. I needed the gospel when I was saved, when I was born again, and I still lean on the good news of God. I still lean on the gospel to this very day, to this present hour. And so I just wanted to take a quick minute to talk about the glory of the cross and that of the gospel. And you guys have heard me say it many times over, and you will hear me say it many times again. God so loved the world. God so loved the world, He would not allow the world to continue on separated from Him, dead in our trespass and sin. But He made a way. He made a way for us to know Him. Because we all know this. We, we were not good people. We may be able to compare ourselves to others, but we know that at the end of the day, we could not measure up to God's perfect standard of righteousness. And we were separated from God for all of eternity. But God in His riches and His kindness and His grace and mercy sent His Son to live the life that we could not live. A life of perfection. A life of righteousness. He kept God's law perfectly. The only one who has ever been able to do that. And then He died. The innocent died in our place. The guiltless for the guilty. He took our sins upon Him on that cross and God crushed Him. He drank God's wrath. He drank the cup. He drank the wrath that was intended for us. You understand that? And so because our sins have been paid for on the cross, <clears throat> we are set free. We are forgiven. And that is how God could simultaneously be just and merciful. That is how justice is served and sin is paid for, it is dealt with, but forgiveness and grace is extended. It happened at the cross. The manifold wisdom of God. The glorious splendor and grace of our God. That is the gospel message. And now we have the Holy Spirit. God has given His Holy Spirit to those who have put their trust and their faith in the finished work of the cross. And that is the down payment. That is the guarantee that God is going to make everything complete. One day, you know, we are saved, we are born again, but one day we will be glorified. And we have confidence that this is coming because God has given us His Holy Spirit. He said, I'm good for this. and I'm going to prove to you that I'm good. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit as a down payment to the day of redemption. And Peter talks about that very thing that the Holy Spirit has been given to those who obey Him. So I just want to say, guys, that is the Gospel message. And there are people in here who don't know this. There are people in here who have not experienced this. And I don't know where you may be in your life right now. I don't know what you might be going through. But you need the Lord. You need Jesus. You need the Gospel. You need forgiveness of sin. You need God's grace and favor in your life. Maybe you have a struggling marriage. 
Maybe you are addicted to something. Maybe you have some sort of a substance issue. Maybe there's some sort of a secret sin. You need to be set free. You need to be forgiven. Maybe you are still lost in your sins and you don't know God, but you know that you are in trouble. You know that if you die today, you would go to hell. You know that. There is forgiveness at the cross. There is forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And Peter, he preached this all the time. He was all about it. He was all about the Gospel. And I want you guys to hold on to this. When we, when we partake of communion together, I'll, I'll come back and talk about this a little more. So now we're going to kind of finish out the chapter here. They're in the council. And um, we're going we're gonna to meet a man named Gamaliel. So verse 33. Now when they heard this, they were furious and they plotted. They wanted to kill Peter. They plotted to kill him. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people. And he commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. Now they wanted to kill the apostles, and they probably would have too. These were dangerous people. Gamaliel was a very revered rabbi in that day, and he was actually the rabbi, the teacher of Apostle Paul. Now he objects to their murderous plot. Verse 36, Gamaliel is going to give some examples to kind of back up where he's coming from. So he says, For some time ago, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. And he was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. And after this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. So Theudas is unknown to us except for here, but Judas was the founder of the Zealots. They were basically terrorists uh, in that day, homegrown terrorists who they hated Rome and they wanted to overthrow Rome through guerrilla tactics and warfare. And he uses both of these men as an example to say these guys rose up, they had a little following for a little while, but they faded away. They passed away and that nothing came of it. So with that, verse 38, And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan, uh, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And so Gamaliel is saying, look, this has happened before where guys have risen up and, and they came to nothing and it's very likely that this could happen again. So just let it go. There's no need to, to kill these guys. And if it is of God, you might be found to fight against God anyways and you certainly don't want to do that. So Gamaliel's trying to encourage them, just let it go, don't kill them, turn these guys loose. And this certainly seems like good, good wisdom and it's very likely that this is God moving to, to save the lives of, of the apostles. And that is good wisdom, generally speaking, uh, when we approach something to truly try to understand if God is in something, we certainly don't want to be found fighting against God. And sometimes we, we overthink things or we overreact and you know certain situations will probably amount to nothing anyway so that was kind of his his stance and so uh verse 40 they agreed with him and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them 
they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So the council agreed. They said, okay, well, they still beat Him. You know, they didn't kill Him, but they still beat Him up before they let Him go. And then they warned Him again. They strictly warned them. They issued another command, do not speak in the name of Jesus. But the apostles went out and they did it anyways. But what I find most significant about this is that the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. Is that amazing? You know, they had a really high view of God. I think we have the, the smallest little thing happen and we think, why God? And you know, we're, we're challenging God's goodness and, and God's love, but they suffered, they were beaten, and they rejoiced that they were worthy to suffer like their Lord did. They, that they were counted worthy to suffer. I love that. I appreciate that high view that they had of God. And they continued teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. They weren't going to be stopped. Amen. They continued on preaching and teaching in obedience to the Lord, counting even suffering as something to rejoice in. 